Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Patria Roman Velázquez. Profe Patria Roman Velázquez. It is great to see you looking well and happy. Uh, and it's a, a privilege and an honor that you're with us today. To begin with, can you let us know what you've been thinking about, what's on your mind, what's dynamizing you, what's happening for you now? Well, um, at the moment, the, the, the main questions I have are around social justice and in relation to what's happening in the world, in relation to what's happening in my projects, and just wondering who's listening, who wants to listen, and what should we be doing? These are very big questions. Perhaps we could focus them a bit by talking about your current project and how that relates to social justice questions. Yeah, um, I, I have a, a project at the moment with the British Academy Innovation Fellowship, um, whereby I've been sort of um, a sort of resident researcher at the South London Gallery was to be in partnership. And the project um has a, a long title but it's um basically just to sum up it's a it's about community-led responses to equality diversity and inclusion in the creative sector and i'm focusing on publicly funded galleries um there are like about 13 to 14 galleries and gallery staff that i've interviewed i'm also looking at the policy documents um, of different sort of galleries their implementation, talking to staff about these things, and also how policy transfers in a way um, to the practice, to the implementation. But a big chunk of it is um, working with community groups, um, with different sort of audiences and uh, artists. And so the community-led responses is basically talking about their experiences, um, experiences a lot of the time about exclusion in the in the creative sector, discrimination in the creative sector, and what needs to be done um, to tackle these inequalities and a, a lot of the time sort of injustices as well. Um, and recently, actually, just last Saturday, I've been working with a youth collective based at the South London Gallery called the Art Assassins, and we've been producing for eight weeks um, with Waylon Mackenzie and Lauren G um, at the South London Gallery, um, a, a podcast dealing with this, and we just launched it, and it's available in the, in the website of the South London Gallery, and the title of the website chosen by the Youth Collective is Galleries, Get It Together, and so they really did a good job and um, explore the theme with friends, with other artists, with staff from the gallery itself. And yeah, it's now it, that's why those questions. So who's listening? Who wants to listen? Where do we take this? Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. How long has the project been underway? I started in March 23 and it runs up to the, well for 12 months until the end of February but I've asked for a little extension of two months to wrap up. Without giving away too many trade secrets could you share with us some of the things that you've learned? Well I think 
Um, from the very beginning, um, there's quite a lot of lessons learned. Uh, we're writing a report as well uh, as part of the research, um, more sort of publicly available one. But from the very beginning, well, what became evident was that there's a big sort of gap here between what's policy and what is politics at the community level. So when I talk about these issues in relation to the policies in the sector, in the institutions, and when I talk to artists and collectives and community groups, um, and even with staff, there is a clear sense of these being political issues, right? Um, so that has sparked a lot of um, conversations uh, and it's guiding a bit some of the analysis and the and, um, sort of uh, beginning <laughs> to tap into now. Yeah. Do you think there's some sort of problem with the whole discourse of creative industries? Is there an issue here in terms of its applicability to minorities in particular and to the general question of inclusion? I think this the, the main issue here is that um, I think these are, and, and it is about structural inequalities, and these are wider issues that sort of mm. replicate in certain ways, despite a lot of the good intentions from, from galleries and gallery staff, it mm. replicates in the institutional setting as well. Um, and so how do you break these sort of patterns? Um, so sometimes it starts before, you know, access to education and so on. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it, it's about tackling the the infrastructures and um and putting it in the wider context yeah. of in this case um sort of britain in general and 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 what's happening to migrant and ethnic sort of groups um, in that sense and also one thing that has become really interesting is that when i'm talking about edi even though my focus is on migrant and ethnic groups um, a lot of the different galleries I've chosen have very different focus. Some are on gender, some are on disability. So that will all come together as well, like the different focuses and emphasis that different galleries have in relation to EDI. And also the scale of the galleries are very different. And so that has to also be taken into account. Some are bigger, some are smaller. And how do you implement initiatives that are not just about tick boxes, that are not just about... Um, sort of trying to please funders, right? Or, or to talk to what the funders are looking for now. So, but how do you embed that in the ethos of the gallery? My experience of being that gallery staff and their ethos is very much towards equality, but trying to implement this in ways that is meaningful for these communities, it's, it's, it's a challenge and it's a challenge because funding it's lacking as well. Um, and also here, I probably want to also talk about this idea of meaningful because I keep asking myself, but what is meaningful for the communities? What makes it meaningful? Um, and that's also something that I'm trying to explore in, in the analysis that I'm beginning to, to do now. It sounds like an amazing project and I'm sure we'll be very keen to record another podcast with you when the report comes out so you can share with us some of your, in a sense, final insights, I was going to say insults, sorry, final insights. <laughs> but of course, these things are always already provisional because circumstances change. 
But I'm assuming that one of the problems that's encountered, and this isn't necessarily the fault of the people actually working in the galleries, is issues of education and class uh, and the dominance of whiteness and middle-class whiteness. Am I right in assuming that? Yeah, yeah, these are wider uh, sort of, uh, yeah, structural issues about inequalities, funding, class, race, education, access, right, to to various resources as well. And, and yeah, class is quite um, a big issue as well. Often um, in galleries, uh, it's the case that people who come from fairly affluent backgrounds can afford to work for very little money because they're trustafarians. Uh, and this may not be true in the case of the galleries you're looking at, I don't know, but it's one of the factors that's quite important in also depressing the salaries of people working in these contexts, right? Seems the salaries and things seems to be um, improving a bit, I would think, that, that they're more unionised and things like this are beginning to sort of um, take hold of galleries as well, some of the ones I've looked at, actually. However, what I find is there's still a lot of job insecurity, project-based salaries, so there is a lack of continuity around projects and around staff because of funding, so funding is a, a big um, issue as well. And for people outside <laughs> prison, it's worth noting that there's been a huge rolling back of the state in well, really in the last 40 years, but especially in the last decade and a half. And that's not only in terms of central government, but the way in which local governments have had their funding destroyed whilst maintaining a lot of their responsibilities. Is, I think that's fair to say, yeah? Yeah, there's a lot of, of the, the, the funding scenario in the UK is also changing and the shifts can be noticed in in some of the approaches of the galleries and what's happening in in the sector but also i think one aspect that i am really looking because i'm based in their education department so i've been focusing more on the community side of the galleries and their engagement different galleries have different um names you know participatory engagement or community engagement or so on but i'm in 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 looking at that sort of distinction between what is the gallery main space and their function and their education participation sort of department which is working with the communities and there is also a a, a sort of sometimes merging of the two and bringing the two together to work other times quite distinctively so separated. So I'm also looking at that and the priorities, where are they, the functions of the gallery, right? Because the gallery is an art space, but also when you're working with communities, you know, their space is a big asset that communities need in certain ways. So some of the the, the, the questions, and this links to my previous work as well, which is what is the role of galleries in their neighbourhood and with the communities that surround them, right, in that respect? And that sort of links a bit with my previous research in terms of that ecosystem, right, of the high streets, of neighbourhoods, um, and, and where are we to place the galleries? Should they have a role, right, beyond just exhibiting contemporary art or not? Um, so those are questions that frame the bigger sort of project in, in that respect. 
Could you then perhaps tell us a little bit about that previous work? Yeah, well, my 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 work with um, well Latin Americans in London and more generally migrant and ethnic groups in in relation to um, gentrification in London. Um, again, it's about the role that migrant and ethnic sort of economies um, play in the high street, um, their importance, what they bring to the local economies, and more generally to 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 the economy in the UK. Um, and the, fo- the, the focus of that work has been in Elephant and Castle, where there was or is uh, a large sort of Latin American business cluster there and also sort of population there. Um, and related to that work, I founded a charity when I left my academic job in 2013 um, called uh, Latin Elephant. And so Latin Elephant has been crucial in putting race in the agenda for the planning process. And just to give some context for people outside Britain, because Britain provides about 20% of listeners to this podcast. So we're talking about South London, uh, this area called Elephant and Castle, which appears on the front of buses because it's often a destination for buses and which organically created a cluster of Latin American businesses, a lot Colombian, I think, right? Um, Could you tell us a little bit about those businesses, what people needed to do and so on, and perhaps give a bit of a picture of Latin Americans in London? Because you guys really do form an invisible minority in terms of coverage by the bourgeois media, although Latin Elephant's gone a long way to change that, but also recognition of the contribution and even the presence of Latin Americans in the capital. So a little bit about Elephant and Castle and the cluster of Latin American businesses and a little bit about Latin Americans in, well, I guess the UK generally, but particularly London, which is where most folks tend to be. Yeah, um, Elephant and Castle, it's, an area in South London that is quite distinctive for its uh, sort of um, history in terms of having been bombed, you know, during the war, having been restructured um, sort of completely around a lot around public housing, for example. But it's in prime location, is zone one, um, transport wise, very well linked. So the value of the land in comparison with the, the the buildings that are around doesn't seem to match, right? Um, so there's been a big uh, sort of attempt to um, regenerate the area, revitalize it, gentrify it in certain ways, right? Um, and and taking advantage of this idea of land as an asset, right? And um, in which then a lot of the public housing. Um, Haygate, for example, estate, which was one of the biggest housing estates, were demolished, has been demolished. That area has been rebuilt for like flats for the middle upper classes in that sense. Um, and the shopping centre um, was one of the first ones that also in Europe that was sort of um, built. And it, it's here in the heart of the Elephant and Castle where um, many um, migrant ethnic sort of um, groups um began to sort of open up shops and Latin Americans were one of those and around um inside the Elephant and Castle shopping centre there were around 12 shops around 
the area within five minute walk of, of, of the shopping center. We um, counted around a hundred. And if you go further in Southwark, there are even more um, shops of Latin American origin only, right? Or where the, where the um, sort of owner identifies of having a Latin American background. Um, what happened with this was um, the, the, the shopping center was about to be destroyed. The plans for this were going on for a very long time. Finally, um, Latin Elephant was trying to um, sort of help the Latin American traders and other migrant network traders um, in fighting for the rights, really, to remain in place, to make sure that, that there was proper relocation for them. Um, they were um, evacuated of the shopping centre in September 2020. The shopping centre has been fully demolished and it's now underway, a new sort of development or the proposed sort of development. Along the way, Latin Elephant gained loads of um, concessions and, and, and things that were rightfully so um for uh, and even from the policies perspective um for for those traders um one of them being the first um uh, refusal offer for the new sites relocation sites for around 60 percent of the traders were relocated compensation for them and so on you could visit the website actually at latinelephant.org um which have all of this sort of accounted for um but this um fight for like remain in place and to say here we are and we're here to stay sort of sort of um uh, motto that we tend to have it's this uh, i think it was a sense of us trying to say we're here you know we are fighting for a visibility for our rights to be um to, to be acknowledged in this place you can't just dismiss us as if we haven't contributed to the area um and that in a way goes back to then talking about latin americans in london latin americans in london you know back from the days i did my phd thesis of the making of latin london you know uh, I arrived at the late, you know, it was it could sort of coincided with in, a, a big immigration sort of change in the law. And so in the late 70s or so, a lot of what is called the big, bigger wave of Latin American workers came to the UK, triggered by that change of immigration law that allowed people who were not um, connected to the British Empire to come into the UK and that was a big shift and that allowed um, a lot of um, this population to sort of come uh, they are um, the majority of them are between Brazilians and Colombians uh, Lambeth and Southwark which are two boroughs in South London are the biggest um, are, are, are the biggest concentration Latin Americans are Um and they are a highly sort of skilled population with a lot of language barriers and end up doing a lot of work below their skills level um, in that respect. Um, it is a population that been trying to become more and more visible. There's a few reports by a colleague as well, um, Kathy McIlwain, on the profile, um, no longer invisible towards visibility, which um, I'll, I'll invite you to also sort of read and, and go to because it has a big sort of profile of, of, of the, the research of the Latin American community. And one of the things that I find really interesting now is that there are loads of youngsters who are going to local schools, who've grown up here, 
and they're also mobilizing and they are doing their organization. So there are quite a few um, Latin American organizations, some officially charities or not, that are targeting that group. And, and, and I feel really, really happy to see that, you know, really proud that there is a mobilization on that generation as well. One of the things I find as a, an outsider is that when I read about controversies, for example, the lack of diversity in the fashion industry or the book publishing industry in Britain, the only people I read about are people being excluded with the heritage of the British Empire directly. You know, they're South Asian or they're African descended from the Caribbean or from Africa itself. Nothing about Latin Americans uh, and the need to include them. Nothing about Poles you know, uh, and the need to include them. And nothing about how the failure to include, for example, Polish people in ideas of cultural diversity clearly helped to enable Brexit because there was such anti-Polish feeling in many sectors of of Britain where there were lots of Polish people, but there'd been no attempt to integrate them culturally or provide them with the tools to feel represented. No? So I guess it's one of these things where I worry that in general, the diversity discourse in the UK is too limited to its own imperial guilt. And, of course, this is because, in part, it doesn't realise the kind of guilt it also holds with reference to Latin America. (laughs) Yes. Because until the First World War, Britain was the dominant economic presence in the 19th century in these areas. Anyway, you know all of this better than I do, but it's possible some of our listeners won't. So I wanted to put my or in, as it were, my little bit in. But I wondered how you feel about the definition of diversity in Britain. Because in the United States, for example, Latin American descended people are front and centre, along with African Americans and Asians, in the discourse. But I think generally not so in the UK. Yeah, the diversity discourse is um, it's very much like... I would say it's 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 like a show, right? It's about um, sort of being, um, or sort of for the outside world, sort of um, allowing them to know or acknowledging that this is a diverse and multicultural society. Um, however, matching that and acknowledging that with rights and with um, you know acknowledging diversity and which is one of the reasons why Latin Americans have been so keen on saying recognize us right if you recognize us and if that happens and you're aware that we exist then that comes with with a lot of other rights as well for these groups and I think um, it's there where where I find and and, and sometimes it's on, on things that are not said where you find um, the lack of inclusivity, um, what I call discrimination because I don't like the word unconscious bias, for example. You know, there are forms of discrimination that are quite underground that that, that are sort of there in the most sort of um, superficially sort of, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like a veneer here and then, if you start unpacking it, you begin to realize the level of injustices, the level of um, discrimination that exists. Um, and this in all spheres, I, I think there's a long way to come. I think the UK has come a long way, but there is 
quite a long way to go still in 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 many spheres of life and, and institutions as well. Yes, I think in terms of immigrant discourse, the worst time in my life was the 70s uh, and the bald-faced racism against African-descended and South Asian-descended people. But even the evil Tory party is exceeding those levels, I think, in the purebred racism at the moment that it is exhibiting in its appeal to the worst elements of white, middle and middle class, principally poorly educated, but nevertheless affluent England. Focusing on more positive things, in the time that I've known you, which is over a decade, Latin Elephant's gone from being what felt like almost a one-woman operation to being quite an amazing thing. (laughs) And you're still absolutely front and centre from what I can tell. But tell us how it's expanded and what some of the frustrations and the successes have been, if you Yeah, I think Latin Elephant, yes, it started with me and um, then... From 2017 onwards, we employed um, first, you know, <laughs> they were the first employees, basically. Um, and um, they still remain with us. They're now co-directors of the organization. We employed five people. Um, and, um, yeah, we've grown and we've been noticed. I think some of the um, things for which we've been noticed is because we, all the people that were at Latin Elephant have a commitment, commitment to social justice, a commitment to the course, you know, Latin Americans, migrant ethnic economies. Um, and we've grown from, from just me to now five. Um, funders have been, yeah, funders have been wonderful in terms of believing in the work we do around racial justice, about putting race in the agenda for the planning process. It's very much runs now without me, I should say. I am still the chair of the Board of Trustees, um, and sometimes I provide directions when I see that, you know, where are we going, where should we go? But it's also collective conversations, right? It's not just me. It's it's it, the, the people who are working there have a lot of insight into where should we be going and why, right? Um, so we've been really respected because we also produced research, which is quite valuable. And so we published this in report. We engage with current issues, like, for example, at the moment, we're beginning to tap into um, Burgess Park and the sort of elimination of barbecue and the barbecue areas around that area. And this impacts migrant ethnic groups in particular, people who live in overcrowded accommodation. So we are beginning to sort of expand issues about space and place and migrants and ethnic um, sort of groups. Um, And in that sense, I think, yeah, Latin elephant, it's beginning to also redefine around those topics. We are beginning to... Um, uh, for example, form coalitions London-wide on campaigns similar to Latin Elephant to um, gather evidence, to present reports. And so what we're trying to do is sort of expand around that 
that area, which is quite niche, you know, the planning process and migrant and ethnicity is, is it was just completely um, not looked at. So we brought that into the agenda and the type of work we do and the commitment that we all have, um, it's, its value is respected and also for funders, we can demonstrate impact, you know, which is also quite important for them. Um, for all those reasons, I think Latin Elephant, I hope, continue strong with this year. We should be 14 years in, I mean, 10 years this year, 10 years. Yeah, in September. <laughs> yeah, so really, really. I didn't have a plan, you know, I left my academic job. I didn't have a plan. So that it's gone to do what it, what it is now. I, I just couldn't feel... I'm more proud of, of of what Latin Elephant has achieved. And this is not just down to me, you know, I say I've got wonderful trustee board, wonderful employees, wonderful um, volunteers. So, yeah. And speaking of academia, of course, as you say, you were in it, and then since then you've returned to it. Could you tell us a little bit about your scholarly publications, which of course cross over with much of this material, your fantastic book that is now... 25 years old. It is. But but lots of more recent work, um, a co-edited book, for example, and lots of articles. Perhaps you could just gently point us in the direction of some of that work that you think might be of interest to listeners. Yeah, The Making of Latin London, Salsa Music, Place and Identity. That was my first sort of book, which is based on my dissertation. So the book was published in 99, with a dissertation in, PhD dissertation in 96. So it's, <laughs> the work is, but what I find with that book is that it registered the beginnings of what was Latin London, really. Um, it was my first incursion into talking about Elephant and Castle and so on, about the Latin American community um, and about music as well and music clubs. The next chapter is, I mean, the next book, which is Narratives of Migration, um, Belonging and Relocation, um, also talks, it's also about Latin Americans in London. It's with my colleague Jessica Rettis in the United States. And we joined efforts and we basically did it like a little sort of journey from leaving your country to arriving here, to finding a job, to media, to what was happening in terms of gentrification and the different neighbourhoods. So it, it really, each chapter touches upon, but it also is a journey of different issues of the Latin Americans in London but it's like a journey in, in certain respects um, as well of the community. Um, and then I've published a, a lot of other articles based and reports based on the work with Latin Elephant on, on, on yeah, uh, this idea and aspiration to get um, Elephant and Castle recognised as London's Latin Quarter, which comes from the traders themselves and from the communities themselves. Um, and... Yeah, um, now I think I'm moving towards um, trying to to a different but related area in terms of galleries and their role within um, within these neighbourhoods that they're located. Um, and so that will see another set of publications. But I'm a, I'm a great believer of open access and books and journal articles, if you can. I've never been strategic in terms of has to be in this journal article and that's I've never had a plan that it was about impact and REF I did it because I believe because one thing led to the other um and it's proven 
that when you do things with passion and with belief, you get what the institution also wants, even though they don't acknowledge it. And I've been in academia in the UK for too long, and it's only now that they can read me and see me. Yes, you mentioned the acronym REF, which stands for Research Excellence Framework, which is the British government's surveillance system to grade universities within disciplines and across disciplines in terms of the so-called quality of their research. Um, You know, I have been on one of these committees, I should say, but it is a, a system of surveillance and restriction And it also creates an appalling cottage industry of self-promotion where people devote more space to telling you how incredibly fucking important they are than they do to actually embarking on interesting things. And I should say that the better aspects of it should, and I don't know whether this has happened because I wasn't involved for obvious reasons, should recognise your work with Latin Elephant and elsewhere, as the absolute gold standard of how to combine academic rigour, so-called, with public intellectual connection and opening up ideas. Anyway, um, the point is you've been recognised and so you should be. And some of us could see this a decade and more ago, thanks to your one, well, 25 years ago, thanks to your wonderful first book, but it, I'm, it gives me a lot of pleasure to realise that there is this acknowledgement of the extraordinary quality of what you do, as well as its social importance. And that leads me on to my, my last question for you. And after I ask the question, I want to throw it open to you, Prof. Patria, so you can add or subtract anything. If there's something we've missed you want to say more about or something where you think, oh, my God, why did I say that? Or why did Toby say that? I need to restrain him then you can go ahead and do so. Sound okay? So my my last question, Prof, uh, and it comes from many years, as I say, of deep admiration of your work, is to ask how you find this stuff out. You've given us some clues. You go to talk to shopkeepers, you go to talk to artists, but how do you build up those relationships such that folks are going to share with you what their needs are? Because that can make them quite vulnerable, can't it, in certain ways, to say, I don't have this, I need this. Can I ask how you go about that? And to what extent your being from Puerto Rico gives you a kind of access that's special or limits your access? Oh, yeah. That's, if I were to reflect on all my um, uh, different stages of the research, yeah, um, I think my Puerto Rican identity sort of helped me in certain ways when I was doing my first research. Um, but I was new to London. I didn't know London. Um, people um, just mentioning Puerto Rico, doing something on salsa clubs. People thought I was like a real expert and a real great dancer, none of which I was. So it was also limiting in the respect. Um, so, yeah, I did reflect a bit on those issues about identity, um, whereby, you know, it, it was also evident that was an academic. So there's also that that I've always oscillated between being an academic and not in certain respect. Um, and that's sort of very much part of the way in which I relate to um, the communities I'm part of and work with. And I think 
crucial in all of this has been trust, immersing myself into what London was, but becoming part of that Latin London um, and gaining trust. Trust have been crucial from the very beginning. The work with Latin Elephant, it's not something that happens from one day to the other. And I really dislike when some academics come, for example, to Latin Elephant or other institutions come to Latin Elephant thinking, all I need is one email, one trader. Can you give it to me? Well, it took us ages to be able to give you that one name. If you think it's so right um, easy to get, then go yourself into the field, go and get that person that you need. And it's very extractivist. So I always insist on paying for our labor because there's also um, issues around that in, in, in the in the sort of um, charity sector in particular, right? Mm. Um, so trust is really important. Trust with your community that they trust you, um, how you deal with difficult partners, how you deal with difficult situations, and, and also how you deal with conflict from within the community itself. I think all of that is really, really important. And trust is, and, and, and also at, to a certain level, keeping to very professional sort of standards is also very important. I also face this now with my new research because I have to immerse myself in gallery world and I'm not part of that at all and into a gallery that I've had relationships with but that you know I basically was inserted in the gallery so I was really uncomfortable I wasn't sure am I stating the obvious am I saying what um also I was an outsider completely um and and yeah building that trust that this is for mutual sort of benefits for understanding this is not um and if there are criticisms or and or, or points, you know, that we all should learn for, it's going to be done in a sympathetic sort of way. It's going to be sort of about, it's, it's about nurturing those relationships um, to the point whereby you each um, trust each other and can talk about difficult things in, in, in a constructive way, I would think. Um, so, yes, it, I think I'll leave it like that. Trust to me is one of the most important and becoming part of and at least sort of respecting people's ideas, diversity of opinions, diversity of opinions and so on. No, that's beautifully put. Thank you. And it shows us how the researcher can also be vulnerable, whether as an insider or an outsider. And you've been both in a sense. How's your salsa dancing now, by the way? Has it improved? A little bit better, but I'm a bit rusty these days. <laughs> Not sure because of age or lack of practice. <laughs> um, Prof. Patria, is there something you'd like to add to or subtract from what we've discussed? Anything that we've glossed over where you want to say some more? No, I I think... Um, Thank you. It's been really good. It's always been good talking to you and it's making me think differently about certain things. So, yeah, no, thank you. Inspirational interview, actually. Yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you so much.